You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. Hi guys, good morning. I'm Jen, I'm the associate pastor here at Forefront Brooklyn. And uh, I want to start this morning by taking a look at some photographs together, okay? Look at these on the screen. Cody. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, I saw these images first online, and I thought they were pictures of, I don't know, like, like frost on glass, or like, I don't, like maybe close-ups of snowflakes or something, or even aerial views of landscape, black and white photos from like really high up. Guess what they are? They're dried human tears. That's what these are. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I was hoping people would say, oh. Because <laughs> that's how I felt when I saw these. I mean, how beautiful is that? It's this photographer named Rosalind Fisher, um, no relation, Uh, (laughs) right? Seriously. Uh, She did a study of 100 tears through an optical microscope that she calls the topography of tears, okay? And this idea came to her when she was in this season. Yeah, that's the tears of when you're cutting an onion. Isn't that amazing? This idea came to her when she was in the season of copious tears, of, of loss and change, and one day she wondered, I wonder if my tears of grief look different than my tears of happiness. And so years later, she collected these images. These are microscopic optical images of, of dried human tears, and of hers and of other people's as well. And it's this amazing collection of birth and rebirth of, you know, there's tears from someone who's yearning for liberation, there's tears of grief, there's, it's just so beautiful because each image shares this tiny little story about what's happening in that person's life. And for me, as a person of faith, I look at those pictures and I think, I just see the divine written all over them, right? Because here our God can create these sweeping mountains, these gorgeous landscapes, right? And yet he puts just as much detail and creativity and uniqueness into one tiny single little human teardrop. I think that that's just so beautiful. And it fits in this, you know, piece of art fits so beautifully into this larger conversation that's happening in the scientific community as well as we start to better understand how significant our human tears actually are. Psychologists and scientists are starting to realize that when we cry, our entire bodies get involved. It's a a physical experience just as much as it is an emotional experience. So when we cry, we let out this outpouring not only of emotion, but also of chemicals and proteins, minerals, hormones, antibodies, enzymes, and then least of all, water that's all building up inside of us as we, I don't know, experience life. So it's no wonder that we feel a really good relief when we let out a good cry, right? Because our body experiences that physical relief just as much as our emotions do. And so that's why we had that question as the meet and greet question today. When was it the last time that you had a a really good cry, in fact? And maybe for some of you, You're like me, and you had one just this week because I cry all the time. But (laughs) it's actually a very um, important part of my emotional well-being to kind of let it all out. But um, maybe you are totally the opposite. Maybe you can pinpoint the one and only time in your life where you ever cried. You know, I think about all those movies where um, the big climax of the whole thing is the time when the character just breaks down sobbing. The, The one that comes to mind is Goodwill Hunting. You know, so maybe you're like that. Maybe you've got your one Matt Damon moment, right? Or maybe you are the kind of person who's still waiting for your Robin Williams to come along because, you know, you, you won't cry. You haven't cried like that in your life. And then on the flip side, maybe you are in a Job-like place in your life. 
and maybe you're just completely physically exhausted because you've been crying through your grief for so long. Um, and I understand that too. You know, Travis talked to us last week about the paradox of chaos and control and how much as human beings we really dislike chaos and so we try to control it, right? And I think there are a few things in our human experience that we dislike more than crying because it is one of the top ways to make us feel out of control. But here we are. We're sitting in this book of Job, right? And I've been thinking so much about grief and loss and mourning and it, the fact that it's this you know, documented thing that active crying is good for our emotional well-being, that it has a positive effect on us. And I can't help but think that maybe crying is kind of this gift that God has given us to be able to express our grief. And then I look at Job and I see that Job, who I'm sure he and his wife must have had copious tears flowing through the season of their lives. I also see how Job expresses his grief in so many other ways. You know, we get the whole seven stages and beyond with him as he wrestles out his anger and his frustration and all of his emotions, not only with his friends, but also with God. And I find myself grateful for that because scripture, just like a story like this, like Job's, is this history of a people who are growing in their understanding and their relationship with God. And when we look at a story like this, we get to we get to sit in that human experience with them in their, in their growing relationship with God. And when we take a story like Job's and we place it inside this larger group of stories of the Old Testament and even the New Testament, we get this big picture of how God is working and evolving through humanity. And so to recap, in case you haven't been with us, Job is the story of a righteous man, okay? I just imagine God's up there, you know, sitting there being like, look at my Job, he's so good. I'm so proud of him. He's one of my best pieces of art. Like, this, this guy's a good guy. He's got this amazing heart. He, um, he loves me so much. I feel like God is up there just kind of bragging. And, and Satan comes along and goes, oh yeah, right. You know, um, he only loves you because you gave him so much good stuff. Like, if you take away his toys, he's not gonna love you. And so I think they get into this kind of, this little battle, right, or this bet that God is so sure that Job is such a, a great human being, like exactly what he was hoping for in humanity, that he's going to take on this bet with Satan and say, fine, all right, I will let you take everything away from Job. So he, he does. Job loses his, his home, his cattle, his riches, his children. Like he loses it all. He even loses his physical health. This, this man is in a bad state, right? And yet through it all, Job says things like, though he slays me, yet I will hope in him. He has these glimmers of faith. He has this desire to still be close to God, even though he feels like God is so far away. He never actually rejects the Lord. He still desires this deep relationship. He's, he is this man of incredible faith. And this whole book, this whole story plays out kind of like this big drama, right? Like this great piece of theater. And I have a theater background, so maybe that's why I see it this way. But it's inspired so many other people through the centuries as well to write great pieces of theater and stories about it. You know, and the reason I think it specifically plays out like a drama is because the bulk of this book is made up of dialogue. Chapters 3 through 37 of a 42-chapter book is dialogue between Job and his ridiculous friends. And oftentimes, I think we put so much emphasis on that dialogue that we forget to pay attention to the first couple of chapters. See, we are the audience in this piece of theater. We are in on something that the characters in the story are not. We know that the real question that's being wrestled out in this drama is one between God and Satan, right? This cosmic battle that Job and his poor friends are not even aware is happening around them. 
this question of whether or not a man will cling to his faith when everything is taken away from him. That's the real plot that's driving this thing, this story, right? It's like if we were watching it on TV or it was playing out and there's a commercial break, I feel like the announcer would say, will Job stay faithful to God despite how he suffers? Up next after this break, right? (laughs) That's the big question that's playing out. And yet through the centuries, we human beings, we take this story and we turn it into, we treat it the way I feel like we treat our own lives. We take the story, this battleground for faithfulness, and we turn it into a story about suffering, about doubt, about good and evil. And I think, you know, when we come to this story, it's no wonder that we get disappointed or frustrated because we can't find answers to, to things like, why do bad things happen to good people? Or if God is so good, why does he allow human beings to suffer? Like, if you come to this book trying to figure that stuff out, you're probably not gonna find those black and white answers. And I'm challenged by that. I'm challenged by this idea of kind of sitting in the audience with this and and keeping this bigger picture in mind. In fact, I'm I'm challenged as I keep going with this theater metaphor, go with me here. Um, I was thinking about this in terms of like, what if I was the assistant director? And God is this incredible director who, who I've longed to work for. Like, I respect him so much. He's so amazing, right? And here I am sitting in the audience in, like, the final dress rehearsal with him, and we're watching the actors on stage, and, and he's communicating with me. He's talking to me, sharing with me, like, the values and the intentions that he's got behind the story. And he's sharing with me the themes and the message that he hopes will be conveyed to the world through this beautiful piece of art, Right? And I think about how, you know, as a director, he's thinking, what can I say to my actors? What experiences can I put them through? What exercises can they walk through in order to find their best performance? Like, in order to find the really good stuff inside this message. What can I, how can I guide them through that? I think about this stuff, sitting there as the kind of the assistant director. And then I, and then I start thinking things like, what if, go with me here, what if we looked at our lives from the same kind of director's point of view? What if we could walk through our suffering and our personal grief, knowing what the end goal is, knowing what the big message is that, that you know, we're trying to get across, that the director is trying to get across? What if we could understand clearly what the themes and the values and the intentions are and, and really play those out? What if the story happening around us, what if we knew what the ending would be? Would it change the stress and the anxiety that I walk around with in life, would it give me freedom to just kind of sit in the pain and the suffering, knowing that there's a bigger picture, a bigger story playing out that I really want to be a part of? What if I could really trust that this God, this omnipotent director, really did have my best best in mind? Would that change my relationship with God? Would that change my relationship with others and how I treat others as I walk through that pain and that suffering? And I think about that, and this is, this is what I see kind of written all over the page when I read Job and his dialogue with his friends. I think about how our relationship with God affects the way that we treat others. And so let's dig into this for a second. Let's jump to chapter 2. Jonathan just read a little bit of it for us. We've got Job's three friends. Rabbi Dan told me how to pronounce their names. I'm going to try, but like, I think I'm going to get them 50% right. Uh, It's Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. 
When they hear what's happening to Job, they come to meet up with him. They met together to come show sympathy for him and to console him. His, his pain was so great. His suffering was so great. They sit with him. They sit Shiva for seven days, right? Like the, in the Jewish tradition. And then there's another three weeks, um, just so you know. There's another three weeks that the Jewish tradition follows of uh, the next phase of grieving where they allow space, um, kind of letting go of vanity and social activities and allowing space for grief and mourning. And I think uh, this is such a beautiful thing because we forget how important silence is sometimes and how important it is to in walking through our pain. Because then I think the perfect example of where things go wrong is when Job's friends open their mouths, right? <laughs> so each one thinks that they know why Job is in the predicament that he's in and how he can get out of it. Each one of them has really great advice on how to fix the situation and why all this is happening. Eliphaz goes first. He says, blessed is the man whom God corrects. He's implying that Job did something to deserve this kind of suffering. He's kind of seated himself in this moral high ground, maybe the self-righteousness. Maybe you guys know a person or two like that. Somebody who's never done anything wrong in their lives, but is always quick to point out to you what you've done wrong. This dude takes three long speeches to point that all out to Job, basically telling him that he's suffering because he sinned. Reconcile yourself with God, he says, and be at peace with him. He approaches God with that self-righteousness, and so he approaches his friends with the same. Next up is Bildad. Bildad believes in justice and fairness. He's that guy. Does God pervert justice, he asks? In effect, he's saying that we get back exactly how much we give to God. According to Bildad, relationship with God is transactional. You get what you deserve. God's just dealing punishment to those who disobey and lifting his judgment from those who repent. But if you will look to God, he says, and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you become pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself for you and will restore your righteous abode. Basically, Bildad blames the victim. He believes in the retributive justice of God, and we're going to talk more about what that means in just a minute. Okay, then there's friend number three, Zophar. He speaks last, and everything he says has already been said. He, um, he says, everything he says, Job already knows, too. And we know this friend as well, right? He kind of rehashes everything. The talking is really more for them than it is for you. Never really quite getting to a point that's helpful. This friend can be kind of exhausting, right? Zophar even goes all the way back to the wisdom of the ancestors, calling back on them, and he's kind of got this stick-in-the-mud approach to his theology, basically saying, like, this is the way God has always been, it's how he is always going to be, like, tough, you gotta deal with it. His beliefs give no option other than to blame Job, again. Okay, then finally there's this fourth friend who shows up, Ilyu. He shows up after each of the first three have had their dialogue with Job already. And most scholars believe that maybe he was edited in later because he kind of represents this more enlightened view and he shows up late, but I don't know about that. Still, in essence, he says basically the same thing as the first three friends say. He shares this view of God's retributive justice, which basically says that you get what you deserve. Our judicial system looks a lot like this. No space for rehabilitation. The crime fits the punishment. For God repays a person for his work, Ilio says. He insists that God is speaking to Job and Job and trying to connect with him, but that Job is just not listening. And what's funny about this is that he pounds this message into Job, never letting him have a word in edgewise. So the question begs to be asked, who's the one who's really not listening here? You know, and as I read this stuff, I... Ugh, I wish that these beliefs were outdated. I wish that we could sit in the 21st century and we could look at Job's friends and say, oh, you know, good job, humanity. I'm so glad that we don't talk to each other like that anymore. Great. We have Jesus, right? I wish that we could do that. 
But I think we all know that that's not necessarily true. We know that there's the prosperity gospel out there for people who believe that you do good, you get blessed, you get rich, right? We know that um, in times of suffering, Christians have gotten a bad rep for, for pushing their theology on their friends or people who are not their friends even. Um, and I think about my, my friend who recently conquered her battle with cancer, thank God. And uh, when she was first starting chemotherapy, she told a couple of her, her family members and friends about her cancer, uh, and then she stopped. She stopped telling people, and she was kind of alone through those first few weeks of chemotherapy. But um, the reason she didn't tell more people is because she comes from a culture and a faith background that when she told them that she had cancer, oh, this just breaks my heart. The thing that she said, the thing that they said to her was, have you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? And they said things to her like, have you repented of your sins? Implying or even straight up saying to her that her sin caused her cancer. And I'm going to just steal a quote from Rabbi Dan, who did that equip course for us on Tuesday night. Um, not even going to get into that, right? But Rabbi Dan just simply put it, like, when your friends are grieving, when they're suffering, that is not the time for your bad theology. They don't want to hear your theology. They don't, it doesn't help to hear those platitudes and those notions and Still, why do we do that? Why, why do we speak when we know we really probably shouldn't or we don't really need to? And the only explanation I can have for that is from my own experience. I speak when I'm anxious, right? And I get anxious when I'm fearful. And, and I think about you know, how we, especially in the Western world and how individual we are, we, we build our faith kind of on layers. I, I keep thinking about like a, a, the Jenga game, that Jenga tower, right? We build our faith on layers. This is who God is. This is what Adam and Eve are about. This is what sin is about. And we kind of layered on top of each other. And when someone comes along with a story that falls outside of, of what we think we understand God to be, and they start pushing at those little Jenga blocks with their stories and their experiences and their grief and their, the things that are kind of that are scary to us, then you, know, you push too much and the whole thing can collapse. And so maybe perhaps out of our fear, out of holding on to whatever balance we have left in our little Jenga tower, we, um, we, we force walls up around our theology and, and we refuse to let someone else's experience or, or story, someone else, even someone we love, their understanding of God influence how we might understand or walk through our relationship with God. And yet still, when I sit here and I look at, at Job's friends, like that might be the case for them, but I still got to ask, where are they even getting this theology from in the first place, right? Like We talk a lot about context around here. Like What's the context for the people of Israel at this time or you know, the Hebrew people at this time that they're even getting this idea of retributive justice? For that, we got to go to Deuteronomy, okay? Go to chapter 28, which is appropriately titled by the editors of the NIV, Blessings for Obedience starts out saying, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, this is Moses writing this, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. And then there are five more verses about how your enemies will be conquered, your land will be abundant, and you'll be known as God's holy people. It literally says, you will always be on top, never at the bottom. This is good stuff, right? And then it goes to the next section. 
The next section is titled, Curses for Disobedience. And it says, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. And then there are 52 more verses to explain in great detail just how pitiful life is going to be if you disobey these commandments and laws. All right, there's a lot to unpack with this. I'm not trying to make fun and I'm not trying to dismiss this either. There's, there's so, oh, so much that we should talk about, about obedience to God and what that means in our world today and how much we need it. But for today, um, as we kind of start to think about this larger arc of scripture and as we get ready to walk through that together into Eastertide and into the weeks and months ahead, I really look forward to doing that. I just want us to remember where we are in the human experience with Job and his friends, okay? And thinking about this kind of audience perspective, right? Like, we still also don't have the whole picture. We don't know how it's all going to play out yet. But yet, we're further along than Job and his friends were. We've got centuries more of, of, of human intellect and science and psychology and art to, to help us understand our walk with God. And more than that, we've got Jesus. But all that Job and his friends know so far is what God is offering through stories like this, through Moses and uh, a way of life and a way of being uh, that's allowing human beings to thrive as the people of God, to understand their view of retributive justice, this kind of vengeful transactional relationship where you get blessings or curses directly related to what you deserve, you have to understand that that's the prevailing view amongst the people and amongst most of the writers of the Old Testament at that time. I think the book of Job represents kind of that contracted faith that some of us still hold on to, that you do good, you get blessed. You do bad, you get punished. And in fact, I think actually, like most scholars believe that it's stories like Job's and, and this kind of idea that helped the people of Israel shape their nation and kind of get past so many of the horrible things they went through as a people group through the Exodus and beyond, right? So if we take a story like Job's and we place it within the greater context, kind of that web of stories of Abraham and Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, we start to get this multitude of voices who are weaving together this beautiful web that connects the values and the stories and the experiences and start to form a way of life, which is more appropriate for how the Hebrew people would have read these scriptures. Less like a tower, more like a web, right? That allows us to ask questions, to faithfully question and to, to be in relationship with God and with each other. And I find that so incredibly beautiful because these great um, figures of faith, these legends of faith, the, the one thing that they all have like, so beautifully in common is how they argue with God. How they faithfully question and confront and wrestle and figure it out. And who, who does this remind me of? I look at the subversive tone in the book of Job, this way that Job um, kind of subverts the, the dominating beliefs of his time. And I think of Jesus. I think about that subversive tone that Jesus uses whenever he's talking to the Pharisees. I think about the way in which he challenges disciples and, and how they think about God. And um, I think even about how he, he speaks to the Lord himself. I mean, we're going to walk into Holy Week and we're going to sit in the garden with him as Jesus prays. Please, Lord, if there's some way for you to, to pass this from me, please take it, God. And then as he's hanging on the cross, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Talking to a Lord who feels so far away. Do you know that Jesus is actually quoting, he's quoting the Old Testament in there when he says that. It's this 
beautiful collection of, of voices of dissent and subversiveness and, and this collection of people who are walking through their journeys with God, trying to figure it all out. And over and over again throughout the arc of scripture, from the life and death and resurrection of Jesus through the gift of the Holy Spirit, our God shows us that he is not a God of retribution, but of redemption. That he's a God of renewal and grace and justice that's far bigger and more beautiful than anything we can comprehend. Our Lord's justice doesn't look like our version of justice. His generosity and his concept of fairness is not something that we can always comprehend. It's much more mysterious, much bigger than our little human brains can, can wrap our heads around. And I, I'm encouraged by that. I'm, this is why I, I long for Easter, because I hope for that. I find freedom in sitting in that mystery and that paradox of who God is. And to me, this is why we read scripture in order to, to start to understand what it looks like to sit in this bigger picture, this bigger perspective, to walk through a relationship with God, wherever we are in our context, in our story, in our evolving version of humanity. And what I'm reminded of most of all when I look through these stories is that the thing that pushes us towards questioning, this, this thing that pushes us towards a faithful relationship where we can come to our God like this, is our, is our compassion in our character. And so today, as, as I've been thinking about Job and his friends, it's, it's, it's funny because the best thing that they did for him was to just sit in silence with him, right? Just to sit there and allow someone else's story to influence your understanding of God. It can really shake things up for you, right? Compassion in Latin means to suffer with. And empathy is the power of entering into another person's story and to uh, imaginatively experiencing it with them. And what I love about those photographs that I showed you, about those tears, is that each one of them is just like, is a million moments collected into one single teardrop. A story that's been building up through the years of that person's life that kind of represents this collective human experience, right? I have a few friends who are going through the loss of a loved one right now. And I can relate to them because I have felt lost myself. I can empathize with them as I sit in their grief with them because I've learned to grieve through major life transitions, through things that I never even knew that I was supposed to grieve. I, um, I know it intimately what it feels like to lose something. I know what loss feels like physically in my body. I know what a divine blessing and curse it is to be a woman in this human experience because I experience loss every month. Um, to sit in somebody else's loss though, to, to sit in empathy with someone that you're in community with, that you're walking through this story with, how it changes and affects you, you're never gonna know. And my encouragement for us this week, the thing that I wanna challenge us all to this week is to look a little bit more like Job to allow stories to be the thing that shape your relationships and your walk with God, to really listen to your friend who is nothing like you and maybe has a completely different version of who God is from you. Because here's Job wrestling it out in the pit, right? Hearing what his friends have to say and knowing his own relationship with God and, and working it out in the way that he needs to. And he comes to this conclusion where he can sit in this agonizing paradox, this paradox where he knows that God is just, and he knows that, that 
um, that his suffering has come from God. On some level, he knows this, right? But he also knows that he's innocent and, and he knows that he's righteous because he's walked through that and figured that out. And he's able to sit in the paradox of those contradicting ideas and to push away his friend's bad theology because he's wrestled it out, he's figured it out. And I think that's the message in this, that when we walk through our own suffering, when we figure it out, we fight, we wrestle with God, then we're able to sit in that with other people. We're able to open up our empathy and our compassion and allow the stories of others to play a part in how we learn to sit in that mystery and beauty of our Lord. One of my favorite verses in this whole book is uh, Job 42, verse 10. It says, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. When he prayed for his friends. I feel like that's really saying the Lord restored Job's fortune when he learned to sit in the heart of God. When he learned to set aside himself and sit in that paradox and open himself up for, for someone else. Ugh, I don't know. Honestly, there's been so much going on this Lenten season that like, I had this whole thing put together today to talk to you guys about like, what it means to sit in empathy and um, to take care of yourself at the same time. But like, I threw it all out the window because like, when you do actually sit in someone else's story, it doesn't mean that you, it means you don't have the words figured out. It means you're gonna be challenged by it. It means that it might not be as black and white or as easy to figure out. And so today, as we close out, we're gonna go into a time of communion. And we're gonna be reminded of our God who sits in us, sits with us in our suffering. As you take the bread and you take the wine, the wine, the juice, um, as you're reminded of a God who suffered for you more than we could ever know, more than we could ever really understand, I want you to consider what it feels like to suffer with others. And in the last few weeks, as we've been writing out these tags and putting them on that tree, maybe you've been writing something about your own suffering. Maybe you've been writing about your own grief and putting down your prayers and trying to figure I don't know, figure out that walk with God. But this morning, I want, you, I want to ask you to, to trust your director, okay? I want to ask you to kind of set aside the thing that you've been praying about, knowing that your Lord knows your heart. And I want you to instead write down something for someone else on this card today. I think one of the most empowering things about living life in community is that when you think you're at your worst, when you take the time to actually give yourself to someone else instead, it's just amazing how healing that becomes. And so wherever you are in all of this this morning, in your grief and your suffering, whatever your story is that you're working out with God right now, just try this morning to just set that aside and write down instead, not your bad theology about somebody else getting saved and getting to know Jesus. I don't want you to write that. That's not what this is about this morning. But rather sit inside someone else's story. Try to figure out what it is that um, that God is teaching you or trying to teach all of us through someone else's story this morning. I don't know. Try it out. Will you guys pray with me? Lord, I thank you for community. I thank you for family, for friends who become family, for 
the challenges that we face that bring us together. I thank you for this shared human experience, for the fact that we can collectively come together on a Sunday morning and, and sit in your story, Lord, and simply just be. Help us this morning to learn to breathe for each other. Help us to learn to suffer with each other. Help us to be shaped and molded by each other's stories, Lord. Help us to remember you in all of it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.